0: to episode 199 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Libby, Donna, Lindsay B, Gillian Sheffer, Kate Avery, Jessica Yates Henry, Lauren Manrique, Brandy McBride, Carlos Cooper II, Jennifer Yurth, Tom Keegan, Michaela, Dragonslater, Erica Anderson, Catherine Cambron, Christina Shirley, Alice Barnard and Nicole Hernandez. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Piggy. Piggy was released in 2022. It has 92% on Rotten Tomatoes and 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb. With the summer sun beating down on her rural Spanish town, Sarah hides away in her parents' butcher shop. A teenager whose excess weight makes her the target of incessant bullying, she flees a clique of capricious girls who torment her at the town pool, only to stumble upon them being brutally kidnapped by a stranger who drives off with them in his van. When the police began asking questions, Sarah keeps quiet. Intrigued by the stranger, an interest that's mutual, She is torn between revealing the truth and protecting the man who saved her. I will say that I was initially pretty sceptical about watching this film for two reasons. Number one, you guys know I hate a bullying storyline. I always find they're done really cheesily and rather than making me feel like I'm actually watching somebody being bullied, I always feel like I'm watching what an adult thinks a teenager being bullied is like and it is never quite the same thing and as somebody who has worked in schools for a long time like bullying isn't (laughs) often what adults think it is and secondly I thought is this go? is this film gonna end up being like ha ha, she's fat because I I don't want to watch that either you know so I watched it actually with some friends my friends Cass and Heidi who you will have heard previously on the podcast and Dave Keane as you guys know long-term friend of the podcast and we decided to sit down and watch this film and let me tell you I was pleasantly surprised You guys know that I'm not a gore person. I'm not somebody who likes to watch needless gore. And this film, it was gory. There was bits of it that I was like, but I didn't think for a second it was needless. And I thought the bullying that was portrayed in the film was really accurate to what bullying can be like. And I, it was difficult to watch. I was like, I'm not going to lie. I was rooting for the killer a lot of the time because I was like, kill those bitches. Okay, they've been really horrible to that girl. It's both... An overt kind of bullying and really insidious, like it happens when adults aren't around. It happens on social media. They're really mean about Sarah's weight, about her family, just everything about her makes her a target for bullying. And she says nothing. She says nothing to the adults in, in their life. She has this really horrible event happen to her at the hands of her bullies. And she still says nothing And I think that is often really accurate to bullying as well, because a lot of times when teenagers are being bullied, the last thing they want to do is tell anybody because they feel embarrassed by the fact that they're being bullied. Because your bullies make you feel like, you know, you're being bullied for a reason. We're picking on you because of this. So therefore, you just have to deal with it. You just have to suck it up. So I thought in that regard, it was believable and it was it was genuinely uncomfortable to watch. Like I felt, I felt like I wanted to reach into the screen and take her out of that situation. And what it did very well was it put the viewer in that moral dilemma. So we had quite a few discussions during the film about what you would do. So you, you see this happening, these absolute terrors who have made your life a misery are being dragged off into the ether by this random guy. And what do you do? Do you, Do you think to yourself, they've made my life a misery and in some ways actually they deserve it? Do they deserve it? Are you going to say nothing or are you going to say something? Actually, do these people deserve to be saved because of how horrendous they have been for such a long period of time? And I would say like it's always interesting, I think, watching a horror film when it's peppered with those kind of discussions of like, what would you do in this situation And it's a really tricky one because not only are you watching this girl being bullied, seeing her bullies kind of somehow get their like a karmic retribution in a really extreme way, obviously, but the killer is not black and white. The killer is not just a bad guy. There's a nuance to him, (laughs) which is also interesting and quite difficult to watch. If you're looking for a horror film that's like action, 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 jump scares, this one is not for you, I don't think. But it is a slasher film with a difference. Like it it brings something new to the table. And by the end of the film, by the final act, like the four of us watching it, we were like cheering. We were like, go on, you know, really into it. And I think you can't ask for anything more from that kind of a film. Also, before I go on to my dislikes column, I, I did find it very interesting how they portrayed that Especially when somebody is overweight, for example, because we do essentially live in a society that champions kind of skinniness as being the epitome of health and what that means for people, not just in regards to being bullied by people in their peer group, but also by people within their own family and people making unnecessary comments about people's weight and people making people feel like, well, if you were skinnier, you wouldn't be bullied. I thought that was a really interesting angle of the film, too, that at times was quite difficult to watch. And in regards to the dislikes, it's kind of difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers. So I'm going to try and be as vague as possible. There were elements of the story, of the storyline, of like why the killer kills, or who the killer kills rather, that just didn't really make sense. They didn't really link together. And I was left asking a lot of questions, but not in that psychological way, in that genuinely I'm confused by this storyline kind of way. I did also feel like there were elements, there were moments in the story that felt so wedged in and were so impractical and improbable that were wedged in to kind of make make the ending fit and, and make things fit together that didn't actually help the flow of the story. And to be honest, I'm just going to put it out there. I was kind of disappointed by the ending. When you watch the film, I hope you would understand by what I mean by that. But I was kind of disappointed in the ending. Overall, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. The girl who played Sarah was brilliant. And apparently this is this film is, is based on a short story, that, or a short film rather, that was on YouTube. And uh, the girl who played Sarah is the same girl in both. And I really liked her. I thought she was great. I liked the idea behind the story. I liked the premise. I don't think the storytelling maybe was executed perfectly, but it was a complex and nuanced take on a slasher movie. And I was into it. I'm going to give it four stars. real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary which brings us to our story this week now before we start i'm gonna to have to tell you that it's uh, a <laughs> it's been a roller coaster with the research this week if oh stick around to the end even if you feel like this story is so ridiculous. How can anybody believe that? I've had a few of those this week and a few of them. Um, you only tell stupidly far-fetched stories on the podcast now, but ooh, stick around to the end. Just stick around to the end. And before we begin, I need to give the obligatory shout out to Adam and Dulce from Weekly Creep for sharing this story with me. And uh, yeah, so people have been a bit intrigued by this story from both the paranormal and the human perspective. People have been questioning whether the story is just too wild to be real. Yep, we, we've never covered a story like this before with this level of alleged physical violence from an entity. So loads of people were left with unanswered questions. People were like, who is the mysterious neighbour who delivered the bogus message? Did Mikey make up his story about his wife seeing the woman in black? Was it a case that he heard the story and wanted in, wanted in, in some way he wanted to be involved? Why is John the centre of all this? We know that in these stories, especially kind of poltergeist type stories, it's often a teenager that's involved or that's the epicentre of it. So why is it John? And to the person who dropped a review to say that they knew the now adult children from the household, we all need more information. Also, as an FYI, there are like religious elements in this part of the story, which I think is a bit inevitable. Like this is a Catholic family in the 80s and uh, just to be clear it's it's the narrative and that is the narrative they chose to put out there so I have no interest in religious leanings one way or another and I just want to make people aware of that before we start so let's get into the story They knew they needed to leave Neighbours and family were willing to take them in It would mean that the family would be separated but right now it was preferable to living in fear As they scrabbled around trying to get whatever they needed together, a neighbour came to their door. John, Greta, there are people from Mount Mallory who want to see you. Now before you start, I think you should hear them out. Mount Mallory was considered a place of importance for Catholics, as in the mid-1980s, the Virgin Mary was said to have appeared there and brought messages. John and Greta were unsure what people from Mount Mallory would want with them, it was said that these people could bless others but other than that there was no indication as to why they would want to trek to Belfast. A man named Cairn arrived to the house, flanked by two women. They talked at length about the haunting and the three from Mount Mellory explored the house. They sensed a presence but struggled to identify it but more than that there seemed to be some sort of block between john greta and the three people their conversations were stilted like they literally couldn't communicate they would stop mid-sentence and not be able to continue they were short and sharp with one another with no real understanding as to why eventually they believed that it would be better to continue their meeting in the house of a neighbor at which point they found themselves freely able to communicate the three people from Mount Mellory told John that whatever was in the house was not attached to him, as they did not sense it follow him from room to room or leave the room when he did. While John was unsure of what to believe anymore, this did give him a sense of relief. However, they said something else, which was terrifying. They said that Greta would be the one to suffer. The following time was a period of instability for the family. They slept in different houses and awoke every morning and wandered the streets in order to try and avoid being an imposition for their hosts. They would sit on the steps of their house, not daring to venture inside and drink cups of tea that neighbours graciously provided. They sourced food for the households that were housing their children, and in short, they were lost. But the goings on in the house hadn't stopped. The house was empty and neighbours reported seeing lights going on and off all night. People gathered outside the house each night to say the rosary and they too reported seeing lights turn on and off and a shadow could be seen moving through the rooms. The bangs and slams of doors opening and closing was a regular occurrence. People reported that when they got close to the house they could hear the low murmuring of voices but could not decipher what the voices were saying the community was beginning to grow concerned about the activity in the now empty house. They asked Father O'Donnell to return and say a Mass, but whatever he had seen or felt in that house had impacted him so much that he would only say the Mass in the hallway, with the front door wide open, so that he could make a quick exit if necessary. The Mass went fine, and the only thing that was troubling John were the terrible nightmares that afflicted him. The next step for the family was to get an official house move from the housing executive. It wasn't as simple as just getting a new house. And as they lived in social housing, there were steps that needed to be taken in order to give the family access to a new property. While the housing official was sympathetic, he also didn't believe the story and a haunting was not reason enough for the council to move a family out of a perfectly functional home although he did advise that they could apply for a move based on health concerns, the stress of living in the house being too much for the family. But they would need letters from doctors, social workers and even Father O'Donnell. That's impossible, John said. You can't ask a priest to commit himself in writing on a subject like that. There's a ruling inside the church about talking about that sort of thing. Father O'Donnell doesn't want to be in the middle of a controversy, He just helped us out when there was nobody else even prepared to look at the road we were on. Well, you're in an impossible situation then, said the man from the housing executive. You've got a perfectly good house that you won't live in. How do you expect us to reallocate you a new house if you won't live in this one? The family were stumped. They did not even want to set foot inside number 91. So they had nothing, no no clothes, no furniture, nothing and it didn't look like the council were going to be willing to rehouse them without a fight. When a radio station got in contact with the family for an interview, John and Greta decided that it would be good to have as many forms of documentation of the plight as possible. The radio show were respectful in their interview and presented the story as it was without judgment or mockery and as a result of it, a woman named Mrs. Sheila Sinclair rang the station in order to offer her services. Sheila was an investigator with the Society for Psychical Research and again John and Greta thought that anything would help and they contacted Mrs St. Clair who put them in contact with a psychic medium that she believed could help. Cecil was calm and he was a welcoming man and he agreed that he would visit the house. At this point the story of the woman in black was impacting their neighbours The electricity to the house had been turned off, but still the lights flashed on and off all night long. There was banging and slamming from the house, and the voices continued. Cecil visited the house, but decided not to bring John and Greta. Instead, a cousin of John's accompanied Cecil and his team. They had decided to visit the house and stay for most of the night. Only candles would illuminate their vigil. The night was calm and quiet until the group heard the sound of a baby crying upstairs. No one moved. And Cecil made no attempt to move until he had verified that everyone in the group could hear the same thing. This would continue throughout the night and every time they entered a room where the crying seemed to be emanating from, the crying stopped. When the information was relayed to John and Greta, they were both perplexed. This was new. They had never heard a child crying in the house before. But something seemed to make sense about it because it wasn't the only reference to babies that had emerged in the haunting. One of my neighbours had given us a prayer book. One of the many things brought to the house during the early days of our ordeal. I can't remember now which one of my neighbours gave it in but it sat on the mantelpiece for a long time. It had the uncanny habit of always being found open at the same page. A page that held a prayer for expectant mothers. At first this had been considered a coincidence. But then it happened time after time. Then people saw it open by itself and the pages would turn until this prayer was reached. What did this mean? Cecil wholeheartedly believed that the entity in the house was not evil. Angry, yes, but not evil. Was this baby the key to understanding what was happening in the house? Was her anger and violence a desperate attempt to avenge her baby? By this time, the family were still living off the kindness of their neighbours and they were beginning to struggle with their arrangements. People were beginning to grow tired of housing them and their children and John reached his breaking point. He didn't care if she was some sort of grieving mother or if she wasn't evil. She had taken their home from them and he was suddenly determined to get it back. He had had enough and he rounded up six friends and neighbours and went to the house to face her down once and for all. At first the house was quiet and serene and no one could sense or feel her but that was all to change. Barney reached forward to the ashtray to stub out his cigarette. Suddenly, I knew she had come back. She had merely been waiting for her chance to get at me. Before I could dodge, she grabbed me by the side of the head and smashed me off the wall. It took the others a few seconds before they were able to put their arms around me and get her away. My head was spinning from the pain. I could only see blackness. As the pain of her blows faded, my sight returned in time to see her walk back out into the hall. This was just the opening of hostilities. It was her way of letting me know that she was far from finished with me. She paused and looked back into the room as if deciding whether to come back or not. With her blocking this door, there was no means of getting out of the house. Suddenly the room was plunged into coldness. She's in the room, I shouted, but, sh- but she's keeping herself hidden from me. Help me, help me. Barney and Ta cried out. I can feel her coldness. She's passing this way. Barney's two sons grabbed a hold of me, placing cushions behind my head for protection. Because her usual target, my head, was barred from her, she grabbed my ankle instead and began to haul me off the sofa. Greta and the others all climbed on top of me in an effort to hold me down. Even so, we began to be dragged towards the door, five men and a woman. And this thing had strength enough to move all of us. As I was dragged towards the door, I thought, Oh God, where is she taking me? The strength of the grip she had on my foot was beyond belief. Her grasp was like a vice. Then, to my relief, she let go. Nobody needed to say anything. They all surrounded me like a rugby scrum and we edged our way out to the front door. As we moved, I said, She's standing there, watching us. She knows she's won. She had succeeded in putting us out of our home. It was decided then that John was not to re-enter the house. Greta, accompanied by some female friends, would enter in order to grab clothes or items that were needed. When they entered the house, the house had been completely ransacked, as though the woman in black had gone on a rampage after the group of men had left the previous night. The women worked through the house, room by room, to put all of the furniture back in order. It was only when they went upstairs that they realised she was still there waiting for them. The women saw on entering a bedroom that there was a shadow or a shape on one of the beds, an indentation. And as they approached the shape, it moved as though it sat up in the bed and swept from the room. The women could feel the icy cold breeze as it passed by them, but there was no violence, no attacks, and the women were able to put the house back in order, gather what they needed and leave. Cecil returned to see how the family were faring and brought a woman named Anne with him. Anne watched Greta intently, and seemed deeply worried about her. Greta had managed relatively well up until this point, and as Anne was leaving, she repeated that Greta needed to look after herself, and that she was concerned that she would end up in hospital. And sure enough, that night Greta had a severe asthma attack, and was admitted into hospital. John was still riddled with nightmares, and it had gotten to the point where he was both sleep-deprived, and also terrified of going to bed. And Cecil suggested that if John returned to the house, they may be able to alleviate some of his nightmares and stress. John reluctantly agreed, feeling at this point that anything was worth trying. Cecil was still convinced that the spirit that resided in the house was not evil, and that she just needed help and guidance. Cecil, Anne and John returned to the house. They did so quietly and without letting anyone know. Cecil and Anne did not want any sort of commotion caused by their presence. There was still no electricity in the house, and so they lit candles and sat quietly in the living room. John was terrified. He was convinced, despite Cecil and Anne's reassurance, that he was going to be brutally attacked by the woman in black. They sat in the living room, and the candles began to flicker. John could sense her, and he could feel her, and he was petrified but nothing untoward happened. Cecil softly told John that it was time to go upstairs, but that him and Anne would be by his side the entire time and that nothing would happen to him with them there. As they made their way up the stairs, John's shirt was stuck to his back with cold sweat. He was a trembling, nervous wreck. They got to the landing and the curtains on the windows began to sway and billow. She's here! here! John whispered, barely able to find his voice with the terror. Anne was quiet and calm, almost in a trance as she tried to communicate with the woman in black. The temperature plummeted and it was too much for John to bear. He begged to go back downstairs. Anne recognised how much the whole situation was distressing John, so she agreed and led the way down the stairs. John followed and Cecil came last but stopped A few steps down and called to the others. They could clearly see that Cecil was being pulled backwards as though the woman in black just did not want him to leave, did not want him to go back down those stairs. She wanted them on the landing and reluctantly again, John made his way back up the stairs. The bathroom door was opening and closing by itself and Cecil moved to investigate it. As soon as he touched the door, he was completely frozen in place and struggling to get his words out. Eventually he broke free from his paralysis and Anne and Cecil believed that the paralysis was a way to split John away from Anne and Cecil. If Anne had rushed to help Cecil then John would have been vulnerable. Then I felt a cold draft start up. It blew all around the landing and suddenly she was there, the woman in black. This time however instead of looking like a real three-dimensional person her image appeared on the wall that faced us. It just showed her from the shoulders up. A strange expression was on her face. One I hadn't seen before, not anger. Something less straightforward, it was hard to put my finger on. She stared at us, as if in wonder. I said nothing to the others about seeing her. I wanted to see if they could see her too. For too long, I had been the only one to actually lay eyes on her. I prayed to God that Cecil and Anne could see her too. I could sense Anne shifting restlessly beside me. Don't worry, John she said. I can see it as well. I know what it is that you're looking at. Oh yeah? Then where is she and what does she look like? To my relief, she pointed out her position easily and described her exactly, right down to the expression on her face. Anne described it as a sad, solemn expression, one that was looking for help. Anne and Cecil seemed convinced that they could help her, that they could do something and that the woman in black needed something from them, but John was not so sure. He was desperate to get out of the house, and when they finally returned downstairs to the living room, the candles were flickering wildly. John knew she was still there, but this time there was something else that they had never seen in the house before. A green light was flickering on the ceiling. It looked as if someone was flashing the beam of a torch around in circles. Anne shouted, Cecil, hurry up and see this. You know what this means, I said to Anne. She's showing her presence again. I wouldn't be too sure of that, John, said Anne, as she slowly turned on the spot, her eyes fixed on one of the slowly moving globes of green light. These are coloured lights. This is a spirit manifestation to help us and to help the spirit that you see. The green globe of light was about the size of a tennis ball and it bobbed in the air about three or four inches from the ceiling. As we watched, it slowly disappeared into the ceiling directly under the spot in the ceiling where the face had shown itself on the wall. Before it completely disappeared, another globe appeared. This was a gold-colored one and it moved much faster, but it too entered the ceiling at the spot directly below the landing. As we watched, doors opened and closed. They weren't being slammed. It was as if they were being moved by a strong but firm breeze. As Cecil hurried in from the hall and joined us, the candles were still being affected, and the spectral flashlight was still on the ceiling. His face said everything. Anne was bubbling with excitement, pointing to the light on the ceiling as it flew around and around in seemingly aimless circles. By this point, even Cecil and Anne were stumped and while Cecil still did not believe that the woman in black was evil... He believed that she was far more complex than any of them could possibly understand and therefore getting rid of her was, at worst, not going to be possible and, at best, not going to be very easy. They reiterated to Greta and John that leaving the house was the best course of action, at least for now, but there was nothing more that Cecil and Anne could do. Even with the house being empty, it was clear from the neighbours' testimony that the woman in black was still active in the house. Regularly it was being trashed, furniture piled up in the middle of rooms, clothes strewn around, wreckage as though she was angrily throwing items around. What would happen to John if they moved back in? Or worse, what would happen to the children? Now that Cecil and Anne had done all they could do, John and Greta were at a loss as to what they could do next. The Catholic Church had washed their hands of the situation and local priests wouldn't even say a mass in the house now. The Skillen family were on their own and it was beginning to take its toll on them. The children were scared, and being moved from pillar to post, Greta felt like the family were a spectacle in the local area. And one night it culminated in a huge blowout between John and Greta, which resulted in John storming out, and for some reason, he ended up back in number 91. Perhaps he wanted a way to expel his rage, to once again tackle the crux of his problems head-on. The house was cold and silent, and John sat in the living room with his head in his hands, anger and sorrow pulsing through his veins. The lamplight from the street flickered dimly into the room, and John heard a scraping sound. He looked up, failing at first to decipher what was making the sound, and then, to his horror, he realised that one of the armchairs was sliding along the floor towards the wall. When it reached the wall and could go no further, it flipped over onto its side. There was a heavy, loaded silence that followed when suddenly the sofa was flung towards the fireplace, the temperature plummeted and John bolted for the door knowing what was coming next. I got up and turned for the door, but before I could do more than take a step, something grabbed hold of my foot, whatever it was. It felt very strong, but at least it felt like a human hand. Then another grip fastened on me on my upper arm this time. The fingers closed like a vice, digging deep enough to draw blood. I was caught in an awkward stance, with little in the way of leverage. But all the same, I pulled with all of my strength. My foot broke free, but the grip on my arm grew stronger, the blood trickling down the inside of my shirt. Then the second grip was fixed on my leg. This time it didn't squeeze. The invisible nails were tugged down my leg with a stinging sensation, gouging the skin, tearing my socks. I shouted out for help even though I knew that there was no one to hear. I had a fleeting hope that maybe Greta or Ta would have followed me but our argument had been bad this time and I had deeply hurt Greta. When I fought in the invisible grip I knew that I was trapped. I tried lashing out at my captor, swinging my arms wildly, aiming at where a body might be but there was nothing to hit. All I could say was, Jesus help me, Jesus help. Then I managed to break free. I got to the door, but it wouldn't open. I turned on the handle and tugged and tugged, but it wouldn't give. Then I felt this presence behind me. It was laughing at me, sneering at my antics to get away from it. The room was terrifyingly cold and my hair was standing up on end, and I felt that my heart would burst with fear at any moment. Then the door opened and I was able to hurl myself out into the street. John ran and ran until he reached the house that they were staying in. Greta sat up in the bed in shock at the sound of John bursting into the room. He turned the light on and Greta was appalled at the state of him. His arms were bloodied and scratched, his socks were torn and ripped. The scratch marks on his shins were so deep to the point that you could almost see bone. As John lay there that night, he knew that they needed to move far away from this house far enough away that he wouldn't be drawn back to it. People were still intrigued by the goings-on in number 91. The neighbours would pop in regularly to see what damage had been done the previous night and Greta's friend and sister were desperate to go into the house for a look, keen to see what all the fuss was about and whether this woman in black was real. Greta assumed that if John wasn't there, they would be fine, that they would maybe see some shadows and feel her cold, but they were proved wrong. When they fled the house, they were shook and ashen-faced. Margaret, the friend of Greta's, was standing in the living room when she felt something grab her and throw her bodily across the room. For the first time, the entity had physically attacked someone other than John. And so John and his friend decided once again to go back to the house for a showdown. It would seem that over a few drinks and a deep discussion of the situation, they decided that they needed to go back and face her. Again they found themselves back in the living room of number 91 waiting quietly and smoking cigarettes. The temperature dropped and John watched as the woman in black entered the room. She just stood and stared. This time there was no anger in her face. Her expression was unreadable and she just stared at John with her piercing gaze. A knock at the door broke the trance and Greta was ushered into the house concerned about John and his friend. They sat in the living room and the woman in black entered again. I started to describe my last encounter when in walked the woman in black again. She entered in a very aggressive manner, as if she was in a stamping rage, and meant to settle things once and for all, but instead of a discussion, it was back to open fisticuffs. As soon as she entered, she made a grab for my neck. I dodged enough so that she only caught me by the side of my head. The contact was very brief, but her strength was such that she still sent my head bouncing off the wall. She tried to secure a better grip on me, but Tan Greta surrounded me and protected me from her. At that, the woman vanished into thin air. They knew they needed to leave, and as they walked towards the door, John's friend moved away from him just enough to allow the woman in black access to him again. I don't know where she came from, but I was pulled like a rag doll from between Greta and Tan, smashed against the wall. Once there, my head was grabbed and banged repeatedly off the wall. Ta managed to get the door open but by this time I was unconscious. Ta later told me that he shouted for help and within a minute a dozen neighbours showed to help us. Greta could only stand and scream in terror all she could see was my body jerking with no visible agency to account for my strange actions. She described it later as if someone invisible was standing there kicking at my body. Her only way to help was to climb on top of me in order to lend me some protection. Then the neighbours arrived and grabbed hold of my feet and pulled us both out into the street. I later learned from these neighbours that although there were five or six men pulling me, they found it very difficult to get me out into the street. They were fighting a force that was using my body as the rope in a grisly tug of war. In fact, the only way they got me out was when they felt the resistance depart. They could feel me being released. When they saw I was unconscious, one of the neighbours tried to find my pulse to check if I was still alive. When they couldn't find any vital signs, I was given the kiss of life. The Skillen family decided to leave Northern Ireland for a while. They took a trip down to the Republic to spend time together in a caravan, and they finally felt like a normal family again, even if only for a while. During their time away, John would go back to Belfast to collect money and was informed that a friend knew of a house that would be suitable for them. It was empty and they would be squatting, but it was better than being at number 91. They had nothing, no furniture, nothing. Neighbours who knew of this family all rallied around to give them whatever odds and ends they could. The kids picked out their new rooms and while it was precarious and cobbled together, at least they felt safe. Until one night there was a knock at the door and it was their old neighbors. They needed John and Greta to go back to the house because while John and Greta and their family had moved on to their new life, the neighbours of Number 91 were still living in fear. The house was quiet. But they needed to know whether the woman in black was gone, whether they could sleep easy. They said that the people on their street were furious, that John and Greta had left without getting the issue sorted and Greta was doubly furious. If that's what people think of me, then I will go over there right now. And she did. The group went to number 91, and as John took out his key, his hands began to tremble. Why had they come back here? They all crowded into the hallway, and the door slammed shut behind them. John was suggesting they leave. They didn't need to be here. They could just go, but the others had dispersed into the living room, commenting on how the atmosphere felt fine. Someone suggested going upstairs and John and Greta had no choice but to follow. With every step, John had flashbacks of his first incident in the bathroom with the woman in black of all the attacks and violence and the poltergeist activity. He barely heard the others commenting that she must be gone. But he saw what happened next. Before I could move, I saw Margaret being pulled by the hair and being flung against the wall. She was lifted bodily and hurled down, screaming at the top of her voice. She landed heavily at the foot of the stairs. Sakina was in hysterics, crying and shouting for help. Then she, too, was pulled back and punched, driving her to the top of the stairs. It happened so quickly that I couldn't tell if she was picked up and thrown or whether she just slipped and fell. Whatever, she ended up with a bad fall. As I looked down the hall, I could see that the front door had now opened and Margaret was out in the street. Sakina joined her and, and started to shout into the house for Jim to come down. Jim was afraid to move, and suddenly his head jerked, and John could tell by the movement that he had either been punched or his hair had been pulled. Jim's hand went to his head, and as he moaned in pain, he was pushed down the stairs. Greta was down the stairs in a flash and swore that she had no idea how she had gotten down them, but she had not done it willingly or independently. John needed to make his move now and to run. And as he ran he felt a hand grab his ankle and he sprawled forward landing heavily and feeling the fingers grip around his leg. He shook and kicked and finally the thing relented. He paused for a second before pushing himself up to run and as he ran he felt a push from behind him. A push that felt seismic like an explosion and he was hurled down the stairs. He landed with a painful jarring thump and clambered out into the street. The next day, they handed the keys back to the housing executive. This story was written nine months after the Skillen family handed the keys back to the council. By this point, their scars had begun to heal, but the nightmares still remained. In those nine months, four families had lived in the home, and the most recent family moved out after a single night. I wish I had a conclusion to this story. I wish I could tell you one way or another that there was an end that the family were outed as having performed an elaborate hoax or that a maverick priest went to war with the entity and banished it back to wherever it came from. But this isn't the movies. This thing just began and ended for the Skillen family when they left the home. It would, of course, be very easy to simply say that this story is too outlandish to be true. And indeed, I thought that in my initial exploration. But I have found subsequent information to this story... Which makes it a lot less clear cut than I had originally anticipated. Now listen, we're going in deep and we're going in hard. Let's talk about it. First of all, I need I need to say. And John addresses this in the book, but I need to say, why, why did you keep? Why did they keep going back to the house? Why, in these weird grudge matches, did did John keep going back to the house to scrap with this woman in black? Like she she is not fightable. He refers to it as a grudge match. And he does say in the book, look, I don't know why I behaved like this. If you were in this situation, you don't know how you're going to respond either. I don't know why I kept going back, but I did. I mean, this is not WrestleMania. You know, you're not going to give her the chair and, and she's going to, and, and you know, pin her one, two, three. Not going to happen. Every time I got to another so-called final showdown, I thought, Ah, uh, why are you going back here? Like, <laughs> She's bopping the head off like numerous different people at once. Let me tell you. John you're not going to win this one babe you're not going to win. So before anybody emails me and says this part of the story was really frustrating. Yes I know I equally found it frustrating. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention as well that I didn't include in the narrative but that were mentioned in the story. So the children are actually mentioned much more in the second part of the story and the events seem to have majorly impacted them. So they lost loads of weight, they were skinny, the kids were having nightmares, having trouble sleeping. It was said that the eldest son, John, actually developed a speech impediment. As a result of this, he started to stammer, which can absolutely happen as the result of a traumatic experience. There are a couple of other elements about this story, I think, that need to be addressed. And I wondered how much of this book was written as a way to kind of say, fuck you to people that John and Greta perceived as not helping them in the way that they should. So, for example, there, are, there's a part of the story where some reporters come to stay the night and, allegedly, these reporters showed up drunk and they wrecked the place, like, left vodka bottles everywhere, had apparently, you know, scattered Greta's asthma medication around the place, which I don't really understand why they would do that. And they wrote a really damning article about nothing happening in the house. So, it's difficult to say whether... They wrote a damning article and then John kind of said, Well, they showed up drunk. I don't really know. I mean, is it possible that they genuinely went and stayed the night in the house and nothing happened and therefore wrote an article that was cynical of the family's experiences, which, if the family believed they're going through this, would have been absolutely infuriating and therefore John needed to find a way to discredit them? Or is it possible that they really did show up a bit pissed after being in the pub and brought drinks with them and therefore wrote a really damning article, which would have equally been damning for the family and embarrassing for the family. But there do seem to be elements of this this book that seem to be kind of grudge settling for John. So like the reporters, for example, John regularly mentions in the book as well about how Greta's family and his family, they weren't as supportive as he would have liked. He felt like they kind of were aware of what was going on but didn't help out the family it does seem as though he felt at the, the end that the neighbours actually didn't help them in the way that they should have so there did seem to be an element of grudge settling that was happening in this book there also seemed to be a lot of really detrimental impacts on the family's mental health as a result of what was happening in the house and I think that's important to reference as well There, there is a story in the book that I just found really bizarre where Greta is in the hospital and the nurses realise who she is, that she is the woman from this haunted house. And in the middle of the night, the nurses are purposely making noises to frighten her and a doctor dresses up with like white boots on, a full white outfit and a white kind of mask over his head in order to frighten her. And she immediately signs herself out at like one o'clock in the morning. Nobody tries to stop her. They let her walk out in her hospital gown in the cold and with no means of getting home. And I'm not saying that Greta and John don't think that this happened or that they outright made it up. But I'm not entirely convinced that it would have played out exactly as that with the nurses all kind of bandying together to take the piss out of Greta and terrify her and the doctor dressing up to frighten her in the middle of the night. It perhaps points to the level of fear and the detrimental effect of the lack of sleep the fact that Greta had had this horrific asthma attack and was probably on medication, etc. And that probably impacted their perception of situations. There there was likely a level of paranoia and a general feeling of being unsafe. And I've said this time and time again, but the impact of lack of sleep on your mental health is incredible. Even a few days with no sleep will severely impact your grip on reality, your decision making, your logical thinking. There is a moment as well in the in the book where John references the fact that he accidentally overdosed on sleeping tablets because he was so terrified to sleep, but also so desperate to sleep, but terrified of nightmares. So there is a huge amount of pressure On this family, whether you believe this was paranormal or psychological or this never happened or the family made it up, whatever you believe, it seems from this story that there is a huge amount, a weight of psychological pressure and trauma and disturbance for this family. And it also seems that whatever happened, that it caused a rift and division between them and their respective families. Now, with those things being said, I just thought it was important to reference them because they were referenced in the story. John talks about those events in detail in the story. And it seemed important to include them, if only to demonstrate the psychological impact these events had on the family. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk about a family wanting to be rehoused and that that's what this story is about. That The family created this whole hoax, this situation in order to get a new house. But I actually don't think this is true. This is one of the theories of this story that I just fundamentally disagree with. So according to things that I've seen that I'll talk about later, they lived in what was probably the biggest house in the street. It was a four-bedroomed house and it was a godsend to get a four-bedroomed council house at that time. They had been on the waiting list for this house for ages and were absolutely over the moon to have finally gotten it. Apparently they got on really well with their neighbours, lived a very normal quiet life and they loved the house that they lived in prior to these events. And while there is no way of knowing like what happens behind closed doors for a family, I just don't think wanting to be rehomed would be a reason to put your family under such intense scrutiny and risk of ridicule, not only from your local community, but nationally, because this thing made the news. The other theory that I see bandied around is that, oh, they did it for money. They did it for financial reasons. It doesn't seem like the family have made any financial gain from this. So at a point in the story, the neighbours do a whip around of whatever spare money they have and the family donated it to Father O'Donnell. There is also the question of this particular book, this number 91, a Belfast Haunting book that was written by John Skillen, which is where the information for this episode comes from. As far as I'm aware, copies of this book are sold for like £150. They're really expensive to buy, but the books have not been republished, even though there is a huge call for these books to be republished so people can buy them. But the children of John Skillen and Greta Skillen have chosen not to have the books republished. Now this brings me to the next kind of weird part of this story. So as you guys know, when I'm researching a story, I like to go down a little rabbit hole, do some little deep dives. And I ended up on uh, the Belfastforum.co.uk where people were talking about this topic and the link to that is in the description of this episode. But I also ended up on this tiny two-page forum on fortiana.org about the Beachmount poltergeist completely randomly ended up on this forum and that again is also linked in the notes for this episode. While I was sitting the other night at 11pm reading through the, that Fortiana forum I was sitting reading through it and I was like wow this person this user called Quercus has done so much research on this case And it's really interesting. I was going through all the bits and pieces this person had put together and my email pings up with a new email. And I opened the email and it was like, hi, Emma, just saw that you've done an episode about. My name is blank, but I post as Quirkus on this fortiana.org forum that I think you might be interested in. Blew my mind because I was literally looking at it right at that moment. This two page Fortiana forum blew my mind. So Quercus, I'm not going to use your real name because I, I, you know, I don't know if you want your real name out there for the masses, but Quercus has done loads of research and the stuff that I found on both the Belfast forum and the Fortiana forum and the stuff that Quercus found and posted on these forums was pretty interesting. One of the things that I think is interesting about this story, which is what Quercus points out, is the fact that this story is so difficult to believe. It is so hard to believe, but why is it so hard to believe? And it's probably because there's no story there. So when we think about hauntings, when we think about things like the Enfield Poltergeist, the Black Monk of Pontefract, those big famous cases, there is a backstory, whether it's a tragedy linked to the house, whether it is, you know, a warning. There's no sort of story of like a suicide linked to the house where you go, oh, you dig up all the information and you find, wow, this terrible thing happened here. That explains this haunting. It doesn't work like that with this story. The events begin, the events end, and that's it. And at no point in this story does John Skillen offer an explanation as to what is happening in the house. He doesn't say, I think it might be a poltergeist. I think it might be an entity of the land. Nothing. We just get these snippets of information like the link with the baby. That's all we get. It's never explored again. And actually, when you think about if you were in that situation, it is very likely that you probably wouldn't get the information. Like I said at the end of the story, this isn't Hollywood. We don't get a neat ending. We don't get a wrapped up in a little bow. This is all the stuff that we figured out. So we've figured out what's happened. Would that make it easier for us to believe it? So Quirkus uncovered that the house at Beachmount Grove was built on the site of a clay pit from an old brick-making factory. So there's not much there by way of information. And after the house was vacated by all of those people who allegedly lived in it and couldn't live in it for long periods of time, the house was given over to be used as a youth club with no one ever actually living there or staying overnight again. And the house was eventually completely demolished the whole housing estate was leveled at around 1999 2000 and it was completely redeveloped so the house doesn't exist anymore and while this story is like not well known in a wider context it seems like it's really well known in the local community so to give you an example right on these forums somebody mentioned that there are 104 different individuals mentioned in the book as having witnessed or experienced some of the activity claimed of which 47 people are specifically named now that is a huge amount of people to be witnessing what happened in this house and as far as i'm aware cecil and anne are two of the only people named in the book that were given pseudonyms and what i found in these forums in the belfast forum and the fortiana forum is that people are happy to say yeah i remember this there are people who remember being kids and standing outside the house saying decades of the rosary. There are people who remember the family. There are people who worked with the family after the fact or who knew the children as grown-ups who all attest to this story being real. And while of course in these forums there are people who are like I just don't think this story is real. I think it's made up. I think it's bullshit. There doesn't seem to be anybody even from this small community who is able to say why they think it's made up. I'm going to give you an example of one of the comments that are in these forums and it goes like this. I actually worked with an older gentleman back in the late 2000s, maybe 2007, 2008 and i had worked with him as a joiner. He who I shall not name was close to the Skillen family at the time of the haunting. He was one of the witnesses of an attack during the daytime and watched objects fly across the room. I worked with the fella for about three years and he never mentioned this to me or others. You would think after over a thousand days working together he would mention something. He never did. I only found out a few years later he was there in 91 Beachmount to see the madness. It was only until 2014 I met him on the road one day and we started talking. I told him I'd read the book and he said, I still get nightmares about it and he didn't want to talk any more about it. That freaked me out but I believed him 100%. In Quercus's research, he found out that some people commented on a Facebook group were identifying themselves as related to the neighbours of the Skillins, who became embroiled in the disturbances and their surnames cross-referenced correctly with those mentioned in the book and a lot of those people were vouching for what happened and saying, no, this is what happened which makes sense as to why it is still such a strong story in the local area. And what other people say in these forums is that there were lots of weird things that were going on in the whole estate. It wasn't just number 91. And while something definitely happened at number 91, so there is a TV news report that Quirkus unearthed that was about the haunting at number 91. There is a an interview with Sheila St. Clair who worked for the SPR. She's talking about the... In incidents the events at number 91 and she also wrote about it in her book Mysterious Ireland but she referred to the family under a pseudonym and in that news report the correspondent references the fact that there are at least 10 people in the house every night that there are people outside on the street having a vigil saying rosaries etc so it absolutely makes sense that there are literally hundreds of people who are supposed to have witnessed things in this house but there's another news report from the area which is that there is a leisure centre that is down the road. And in October 1982, the BBC did a report coming up to Halloween about local haunted areas. And this leisure centre had loads of people on who worked in the leisure centre, etc., etc., telling the news reporters all about... The poltergeist activity that they were experiencing in the leisure centre. So taps turning on and off, things being overturned, items moving and people seeing a shadow figure in the corridor that they called Mr Riddle. And Quirkus, who has done Trojan work on this case, found that there is articles that reference the place where the leisure centre was built, that it was called Riddle's Field and that the old hostel next to the leisure centre was originally the home of the Riddle landlords. And there was another article that stated that a man called Samuel Riddle, a jeweller from Beachmount Mansion, declared in the deeds to the property that the mansion should never fall into papist hands, and it later became a convent. So Mr. Riddle apparently has real historical links, and there are stories of fairy rings and suicides and all sorts of crazy shit. So is it possible that just the area itself is haunted by something? Maybe Mr. Riddle was a way to name something to give historical context to some sort of haunting or events that people couldn't quite explain. They're seeing the shadow figure. There are stories about these these, these Mr. Riddle characters from history. And maybe they're just trying to link two and two together. Like maybe this is an entity that can move freely between... Between these houses around the land, like was was Mikey actually telling the truth when he told his story about his wife seeing this woman in black entity at night time when she was getting undressed or whatever the story was? And these these forums online, the Belfast forum and the um, Fortiana forum, are so specific to this incident, like it's so niche, that I really think you've got people like me who are researching the case for whatever reason. People like Quirkus again, who have found the case, are really interested in it and therefore want to research it. And people from the local area. And I think that if there was a reason to disbelieve the Skillen family, other than just, well, the story's clearly made up because it's ridiculous, then that reason would have presented itself in one of those forums. And by that, I mean if they had a reputation in the area for being, you know, untruthful, for exaggerating, for drinking, for fighting, whatever it was, I think that would have become part of the story and it would have emerged in one of these threads. The other thing that I need to emphasize, I need to stress, is that by me saying that, I'm not saying that I believe this story was this really violent paranormal entity and that I believe every aspect of this story happened exactly as is described in the book. But what I do believe, I think, is that this family went through something really traumatic, whatever that something is, whether it was something completely psychological, whether it was some sort of traumatic response to the wider cultural context of what was going on in Northern Ireland at the time, or whether it was something within their own family that that was being played out psychologically. We're probably never going to be able to answer that. And while I might not necessarily believe that the events happened as they were written down, I think there's clearly a lot of weight to what happened within the community. People seem to believe that, that there was a terrifying haunting that happened in this house and at what point do we believe that the events of a haunting are ridiculous like where's the cutoff point so the violence of somebody being scratched or somebody being pushed or shoved that's okay we can accept that as a haunting but when that is escalated what is the point where we go no actually this this has gone into the realm of not being real because I'm not quite sure what that point is and it's probably worthwhile mentioning as well that In her interview, Sheila St. Clair talks about recurrent, spontaneous, psychokinetic energy and talks about it in reference to John, that rather than it being a teenager at the epicentre of like paranormal events or poltergeist type events, that somehow in this instance, it was John. And she doesn't refer to it as a ghost or a haunting. She seems to refer to it as something that is psychokinetic. That by whatever means possible, John's energy is the thing that has created this or fed this. Man, I have talked a lot. And I just need to say again, thank you to Quirkus on the Fortiana Forum for all of your incredible research into this story. Thank you, obviously, to Adam and Dulce from The Weekly Creep for opening my eyeballs to this story. And I highly, highly recommend that you go and read the Belfast Forum And the Fortiana forum. There's lots of interesting stuff in there. Obviously we can't can't determine whether the people who are posting being like. Oh I was the person that took one of the children in. Which is somebody who posted on one of these forums. We can't determine whether or not these people are who they say they are. But if they're not they have a lot of intimate knowledge about the case. About the area and about the skill and family. This feels like it needs to be a Danny Robbins deep dive. So we've made it to the end of the story. We we've, we've gotten there. Thank you so much for listening to this roller coaster. I'm sorry there is not a neat and tidy ending for you but there just there just isn't. If you have a story that you would like to share you can send it to at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com And if you are desperate for some extra content you can subscribe to our Patreon that is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note I shall see you next time.